following is a recording of a sermon given at All Saints Lutheran Church in Ottawa, Canada. For additional messages and more information, visit allsaintslutheran.ca. Hello everyone, this is Pastor Alan Gilman from All Saints Lutheran Church for the message for June the 14th, 2020. We're continuing our series in the Gospel of Mark, which I've entitled The Remarkable Gospel. And yet again, as we look at Mark chapter 8, verses 27 through 38, we're going to see more reaction. Reaction from the people in the story, calling for reaction, hopefully a good reaction, good response from us. This particular passage is like a hinge in the Gospel of Mark. It uh, it sort of marks a Act 1, Act 2 sort of transition. We get to a, a climax, a high point in the story, as well as a sense of impending doom. We'll see that as we as we go along. This story is is connected to what we looked at last week with the blind man who the Lord Jesus touched twice. Uh, the first time he, he he didn't see completely properly and the Lord touched him again. And we talked about how we could see but not really see. And that's exactly the experience of Jesus' disciples in the story we're looking at this week. So why don't we read the passage? To get the context, we'll look at that story of the blind man from last time. We're going to start at verse 22 and go to the end of the chapter. Again, this is Mark 8, starting at verse 22, all the way down to verse 38. And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home, saying, Do not even enter the village. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he asked them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged him to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth therein, for the challenge that it is. Help us, Father, to hear what you say. Give us ears to hear and eyes that can truly see what it is you want to show us through these words. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. 
So let's look again at verse 27. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. So now he was taking them to the far north of that region, outside of Jewish territory again, which he's done on on other occasions in this part of the, the Gospel of Mark that occurs in the northern part of Israel. This, this story is going to take us down south as we go along in the second half of the gospel. But for now, we're at the foot of Mount Hermon, very, very high mountain in the north of, of modern Israel. And they're in the vicinity, it says the villages of the vicinity of a town called Caesarea Philippi. The, the town's name was changed. It originally had been Panias, and then today we call it Banias. The, the, the P sound and the B sound are very, very similar. Um, And it actually was the center of the worship of the Greek god Pan. That's why Panias. And the Greek god Pan was, as you might know, half man, half goat. And people would come to to the shrine, Pan's shrine in that area, and they would commit very perverse sexual acts. And Pan was also known as that he would play his pipes and cause people to and and whole armies to be in great fear it's where we get the idea of panic from and so his shrine area in in this northern part of of modern israel at the foot of mount hermon was actually known as the gates of hell it was a terrible terrible place and it's, it's mentioned explicitly in Matthew's version of the story. It, it's not mentioned here as, as the gates of hell in Mark, but people would know that. Uh, just by going to Caesarea Philippi, people would know the, uh, the, uh, the grotesque spiritual place that Jesus was taking his disciples to. And it's quite a place to teach them the things that he's going to be teaching him, teaching them, as, as we'll see. So what he's doing is he's setting up a very defining moment for his disciples, as well as for the hearers and, and readers of this gospel, which, which includes us, of course. Now, the this very defining moment, one might think, should happen in a place like Jerusalem, the capital of Israel. But instead, he takes them to the gates of hell to teach them this very important lesson. It's the sort of thing is, if this lesson can be learned here at the gates of hell, it can be learned anywhere including wherever you are watching this at this time. Let's go on, uh, second half of verse 27. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? Verse 28, and they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. Now, this all can seem strange to us. Like We know who he is. Uh, this story's been told for 2,000 years. The, the gospel itself begins with an introduction that this is the, the gospel of, of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So we know who he is. But we're taken into the story to understand that as he was doing his teaching, as he was doing his miracles, uh, people were wondering, like, who is this really? Could he be dot, dot, dot? Who was he really? And, and, and so there's these rumors, and all these people were actually all dead. And they had some idea that somehow he was a, these people come back to life or something like that. They knew there was something very, very special about him. But they, in the, in them saying who people are saying he is, they don't say who they really believe he is. They don't say who he really is, which is going to come up in a moment. Now, 
who he is might seem obvious to us. What's obvious to us is our ability to give the right answer. We know what to say. We know who he is in the sense of giving him the right name, giving him the right title. But as we go through this, the question is, do we really know who he is? So let's see what what goes on here. Uh, First part of verse 29. And he said, sorry, and he asked them, but who do you say that I am? That's the question God is asking you and me right now. But who do you say that I am? And the, the you here is plural. In, in Greek and in Hebrew, so throughout the Bible, when you have the pronoun you in English, uh, you know whether it's, it's a, a singular you or a plural one. That's one of the helpful things about the older English and the King James. So thee and thou is singular and you is plural. And so anyway, so it's plural here. He's not just asking one of them. He's asking them all. And it's possible that it's written this way too so that we're being asked. But who do you say that I am? And Peter becomes the spokesperson. He's not the only one who thinks this. He's speaking on behalf of his inner circle group of the the 12 disciples. Verse 29, second, second part. Peter answered him, You are the Christ. Again, to us, this is obvious. We already knew this answer. For them, this was radical. For them, this was huge. Because every it was huge to them because of who the Messiah was supposed to be. Now, there's going to be a lot for them to learn as to what the Messiah was really all about. But God had prepared the Jewish people for centuries prior to this, for this moment, that really only this small group of disciples understood somewhat. And there's a, all sorts of things they didn't understand. They were like the man who was healed of his blindness, but when he looked, he just saw streaks and globs. He was His eyes were working, but he really didn't understand what he was seeing. And so they got the right answer, articulated by Peter, but they didn't really know what this was all about. And so they'll be learning, and hopefully we'll be learning along with them. This this statement, you are the Messiah, one of the things that they did understand, and it's one of the reasons why, if not the reason why, he says in verse 30, and he strict, it says, and he strictly charged them not to, to tell, sorry, I'll read it again. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. He didn't want his cover blown. There was all this wondering who he really is. But if he really was the Messiah, he'd be a target. He'd be a target of everyone. The Romans especially did not want a Jewish king. We saw what happened with Herod. We read about this in in the book of Matthew. When when Herod heard about uh the king of the Jews being born in Bethlehem, he ended up slaughtering all the children ages two and under just to be sure he got the right person. Nobody wants their system overturned. The people in power don't want uh, to be put out of power. They don't want any competition. The religious leaders, they were basically fine with the way things were, even though they would be praying for 
the coming of the Messiah, that God would restore his reign among them. They really didn't want uh, somebody upsetting things. And so it was very dangerous to think that a particular person was the promised Messiah. Another reason why this was likely kept secretive is that his disciples didn't yet fully understand what this meant. And so it would be dangerous for them to begin to to talk about this publicly because they wouldn't really know what they were talking about. They had an inkling, but they did not have the whole story. And so Peter makes the statement, the correct statement. And the statement is, you are the Messiah, which is what Christ means. Christ was not just another name for Jesus. And by the way, uh, as many of you know, at the same time as in, in these weeks, I'm doing a seminar that I call I call God's Epic Story. It's a biblical overview seminar. And I'm doing it online for the first time during this COVID crisis. And I just did session six of 10. Uh, and if you're not watching it, even if you're not part of All Saints Lutheran Church, who I'm doing this especially for, but if you're if you're from not from there, I'd be very happy to send you the links to this past uh, this past week's session where I talk about the concept of Messiah in terms of how uh, in the Hebrew Scriptures, the Old Testament, the Jewish people were prepared to to prepare for His coming. And then I'm going to go further into the Messianic concept as it's expressed in the New Covenant Scriptures, the New Testament, next session, as well as the Gospel, which we're going to touch on in a moment. What What is the Gospel really? And again, I talked about it a little bit in this past session. I'm going to talk about it in the next session. And so I elaborate far more, get into more Scriptures about it, more than we have time for in this message. So if you don't have access to those sessions already, um, I'd be very happy to send you those links for the previous session and the one that's coming. So uh, email me at pastor at allsaintslutheran.ca and mention that you want access to those video sessions and I'll send them to you because I have not made them and I'm not planning on making uh, these sessions absolutely public. All right. So it's clear. Jesus is the Messiah that's his identity. And by saying that he's the Messiah, this is not simply to, uh, a way to say you are Savior. You're the one to save us from our sins. It, it is that, but it's much more. And that a Messiah is a title. It's not just part of his name. It's not just a way to identify him. There's Jesus Christ. There's Jesus the Messiah. Messiah is a title. It actually means King Jesus. That's who he is. And so it's a functional designation and has to do with his mission and it's a mission that he calls us to be part of and this is much of what they don't understand i think it's much that we don't understand either so let's let's get into it further going on to the next verse where things get a little dicey here verse 31 and he began to teach them that the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again and he said this plainly. Now, this is absolutely mind-blowing to us, mind-blowing to them. It should be mind-blowing to us, but it's only mind-blowing to them, probably not us, because we're used to the idea that Jesus came to die. So Jesus Christ came to die. Jesus the Messiah came to suffer and die. But to, to them, what they were expecting the Messiah to do, the Messiah was supposed to come 
and beat up the bad guys, get rid of the Roman oppression, and set up the kingdom of God on earth uh, with Israel at its center. And there's some truth in that, but not completely in the way that they understood it. And they didn't understand that there was a process that had to happen prior to the establishment of God's kingdom in the way that God wanted it to be. There was so much, it was way beyond anything that they really understood. They only had an inkling, but the the inkling that they had that the Messiah had come to conquer um, made no sense with what Jesus was saying here. So he's actually saying that um, he, he was going to show that he really wasn't the Messiah because if the Messiah comes and as himself is conquered, he can't really be the Messiah. So what in the world is going on here? It's like he gives them a pep talk um, by a, so Peter says, you are the Messiah. This is the right answer. And now he says, I'm, I'm going to go die. And and the fact that he refers to rising again just com- would completely go over their heads. Uh, the Jewish people, some Jewish people, like the Pharisees, had an understanding of resurrection, a bodily resurrection, that when God restored his creation and made everything right in the universe, that there would be a resurrection of the dead. But they had no idea, no concept whatsoever that the Messiah would rise first before any general resurrection later on. They only believed in a general resurrection. So he said these words, but they didn't. it didn't mean anything to them at all. All they could really hear was that he was going to meet his doom. And this would have struck them really, really hard because they were playing follow the leader. Jesus was the leader. And if, if he was going to get into big trouble and be executed, what would that mean for them? And in fact, that's what he elaborates on. So we read that Peter took him aside. This is continuing on in verse 32. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Well, that's really something. Well, but again, Peter Peter reacts uh, as any any normal Jewish person that day would have done. He reacts to this, this idea of... Uh, him being rejected and suffering and dying and all the rest. Now, what we don't know, was it an emotional reactionary kind of of, of rebuke? No, that can't be. What are you talking about? That sounds crazy. Was it that kind? Or was it master? Of course, they talked. If they talked English back then, it would be with an English accent. Master, really, I, I think you're a little misguided. I think we should come up with a better plan. What kind of, it could have been a stoic kind of confidence, like, this doesn't sound right, we need to do it differently. Or was it, oh my goodness, what in the world are you talking about? We don't know. And maybe it's possible that it's because we all react in different ways to this kind of explanation, that there's trouble ahead. We don't like trouble. And some of us, we deal with trouble by freaking out. Others of us deal with trouble with a very, very calm and confident way. Either way, we don't welcome trouble, and especially the idea that we're following the Messiah and where in the world is he going to take us? Oh, you could tell the kind of reaction I might have. I'm not the Stoic type. Verse 33, but turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, I don't know if this is supposed to be a little humorous. Peter confronts him, and he looks around at the other guys and talks to Peter. Now, I don't think this is all about Peter. Peter seems to be acting as the spokesperson for the group. So his rebuke of Peter is really his rebuke for everyone. And from what I can tell at the time I've spent 
uh, soaking in this gospel of Mark, this rebuke is for all of us. And it's very possible in that day, there were people that were trying to avoid the very thing that Jesus was calling them to, calling us to. And so while this really happened, this story happened like this, and he really did rebuke Peter and by extension his disciples, there's another extension to all of us hearing this story. Now, now Peter's rebuke is quite reasonable because the idea that King Messiah would come and this would happen to him and saying, no, 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 don't, this should not be, that's quite reasonable. But reasonable can be devilish calm and controlled and confident when it's off base when it's not going in god's direction is actually of the devil now wild and crazy and and reactive can be of the devil too but just because it's calm and confident and sensible and logical doesn't make it right other thing it's it's easy to see how easy it is and we need to see this for ourselves and our how we relate to other people Peter spoke the words, spoke words from God in, in Matthew's version of the story. Jesus speaks great words of affirmation about heaven revealing this to Peter. Flesh and blood doesn't didn't reveal this. You didn't figure this out on your own, Peter. This came from God. And it seems then within seconds he's being rebuked as the devil himself. Well, we need to learn from this that you know, just because somebody becomes inspired by God and can say such marvelous, wonderful truths, that doesn't mean everything else that they always say is going to be from God. Human beings can flip just like that. But what we often do is when we, we, we grow to trust somebody and we think, oh, they're, they're legit, they're genuine, they're godly, then we can turn off our need to discern and then we just take whatever they say as if it's directly from heaven. We need to be discerning. and there's a, It's the good kind of judging that we're supposed to do based on content. What are, what are people actually saying? It's not just who they are. It's what they're saying. And what Peter was saying at this point was of the devil. It's kind of embarrassing. But he was actually, it's for everyone, not just Peter. And so... He calls the crowd to him with his disciples, and he said to them, it's verse 34, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And this is still, this is wild talk. We're now introduced to the concept of the cross. That there's a cross. Like To, to us, the cross means a lot of things. We know the symbol of the cross. Some of you might be wearing a golden or silver little cross on your neck. There's the theological concept of the cross. They didn't have any of that. The cross was a a dreaded tool of horrific execution. And it was reserved for only certain kinds of criminals. The kinds that that try to overthrow the government. Which is how Jesus is going to be perceived. And how his followers are going to be perceived that they were going to be perceived as as social revolutionaries and we're living in a time where there's there's civil unrest and there might be things in our society that need to be up 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 turned over I can't think of the word offhand right now things that need to be changed but there's a way to do it and Jesus comes with a way to to bring change 
It's not the way that a lot of people would like us to do it or insist that we do it. Very, very different. And so he says that, um, so if anyone would come after him, let him deny himself, take up his cross and, and follow me. So this is giving an idea that this, what he's going to be experiencing eventually, he might be going to the cross. A Messiah going to the cross. And now he's calling us to join him in this? This denying ourselves, what's he talking about? It's just not giving in to our preferences, not being who we're, we are supposed to be. He's calling us to a radical agenda. His Many of his followers were following him because they thought perhaps he was the Messiah. And that's been affirmed now. But they have to resist the temptation to follow him in the way that they think Messiah should be. They have to be given over to the will of God. And we need to take up our cross and follow him. A lot of people talk about uh, taking up our cross. It's just bearing difficulties in our lives. You know, the the people we are in relationship with or our families or our jobs or a sickness we might have or the, just this, this whatever state of affairs. COVID-19, it's such a difficult cross to bear. But that's not what he means. He's saying here, you, you and I need to turn from our way of doing things, following our druthers, following the way other people want us to live, and be so attentive to God and be willing to do whatever he wants us to do that we would be willing to die for that. That's what he's calling us to. He says, verse 35, For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the Gospels will save it. Both here and the next verse, verse 36, we see reference to life and then we see reference to soul. It's the Greek word, psuche, uh, we get the word psyche from, it simply means life. And some scholars, which is why in here in the English Standard Version, they start with life in verse 35 and they switch to to um, soul in verse 36. But it's all life. Uh, if you seek to save your life, if your life is about you, your your life is about working things out the way you want it to be. And I'm I try to be good at that. We're going to lose it. We're going to find our lives going in, in down a destructive path. But if we want to pres- really preserve our life, and not just the ability to breathe, but to, to have life, true life, be a human being that's truly being what God designed human beings to be, if that's what we really desire, we need to give up our druthers. We need to be attentive to what God is calling us to say. There's no ifs or buts about this. It's absolutely mandatory. And it's going to apply to everyone. If we live a life that's self-focused, we're doomed. Plain and simple. If we want real life, both in this age and in the age to come when the Lord returns forever with God, we need to give up our own agendas. Tear them up. Receive what God wants. We won't do it perfectly, but with his help, we could follow his will. Verse 36, For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? 
we could be consumed with this life and, and, and with, with the way things are and lose ourselves. It's not forfeiting our soul isn't losing that non-material part of us that's going to be condemned one day. Well, we risk being condemned one day if we are not truly trusting and following the Lord. But forfeiting our souls, forfeiting our lives. This is this is Garden of Eden stuff. Like when God said, you can you can help yourself to all the fruit in the tree from the trees in the garden. But don't eat of that one tree, because when you do, in the day you do that, you shall surely die. That one prohibition. They ignored. They went against what God said and brought death into the human experience. And we've been doing that ever since. Either we're going to feed on what God wants us to feed. We're going to do what God wants us to do. We're going to go where God wants us to go, even if it kills us. And that's where there's life now and forever. Or we're going to do our own thing. And we could do our own thing in the name of God. We could do the whole church thing. We could be reading the Bible. We could be praying and still doing our own thing. We could be trying to tell God what to do, just like Peter tried to tell Jesus what to do. Here's how to answer these prayers. Here's really what I want. Here's really what you should be doing. And and we cough and call we call God to account for the ways He doesn't perform in the way that we want. Well, we may not say it in those terms, but we there are people that are so messed up because God hasn't performed in the way that they wanted Him to, and that is not on it's not on the table. There, there is no negotiating this with God. He's calling us to give up our druthers and follow Him. And that's where we're going to find life. That's where we're going to find joy. That's where we're going to find peace. That's where we're going to find love. That's where we're going to find goodness and blessing. God's not trying to rip us off. He's trying to give us life. But to do that, we have to do it His way. Verse 38. We're almost done. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. He's talking to them in that time. He refers to the time they're living in as an adulterous and sinful generation. They were living in a really terrible time. Uh, They were under the oppression of Rome. The religious leadership had sold themselves out to to Rome, or they they were creating rules and regulations of their own making and oppressing the people with them. It was a terrible time. Whether in the name of God or not in the name of God, that society, the Jewish society that Jesus was primarily ministering to was really, really messed up. And part of that, that, that horrible time they were in was the pull to be like everybody else. And it was costly. It was going to be costly to live life his way, follow in his steps, do what he said to do, not do what he told them not to do. And it would be very, they would face the ridicule of friends and family, of the politicians, of the teachers, of anyone that had any kind of power. Following Jesus meant risking rejection and death. And he makes it very clear if they would be, if we would be ashamed of him, he will be ashamed of us. In order to have a true, intimate, loving, life-giving, joy-filled relationship with God, 
we need to welcome the Lord and his ways into our lives. And it is going to mean, not it might mean, it's going to mean denying ourselves, saying no to our druthers and our ways, and yes to his ways, no matter how contrary they might be in the society or in the church or in our families. If we're ashamed of him, he will be ashamed of us. But if we're not ashamed of him, if we're willing to embrace the, the shame that comes upon him because the world doesn't like Jesus' ways, if we would embrace them, he embraces us and he will make us a blessing. We will not just survive these days, but with his help, we will thrive. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your words, even though they're difficult to hear. Help us to take your words and you seriously, that we may not be ashamed of you in any way, but that we would be able to boast in a good way about who you are and your teachings, that not only we, but those around us could see your goodness and be transformed unto life. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Until next time. Thank you for listening. For additional messages and more information, please visit us on the web at allsaintslutheran.ca.